Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratford Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratford.com. I'm Ben Sheen. On November 8th, the United States elected Donald Trump as its next president. One of many questions being asked right now is what are the implications of a Trump presidency on US foreign policy? In today's podcast, two of Stratford's lead analysts, Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Gujon, and Vice President of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, sit down to discuss that very question. Hello, my name is Riva Gujon, and I'm joined today by Roger Baker to discuss the question that really everyone in the world is debating currently, which is what is to come in a world with Donald J. Trump as the President of the United States? So, Roger, first, welcome back. You've been off touring Asia. I'm sure getting a lot of interesting feedback. They're dealing with their own political turmoil in many of the countries you visited, but also looking into the United States and trying to figure out what this election result means for them. What exactly should our listeners keep in mind in in just looking at this election result and trying to make sense of it? Well, I think the biggest issue that I heard about in Asia is the sense of uncertainty. The simple fact that nobody really knows what to base their expectations of a Trump presidency on. This is an individual who doesn't have a long track record in politics. He doesn't have any track record in politics. So there's no way to compare his rhetoric to anything that he's done in the past to understand what the gap is between rhetoric and action. And that's caused a lot of consternation. It's also made, I think, people place an overemphasis on campaign rhetoric as if that campaign rhetoric was well thought out, planned policy initiatives, as opposed to ways of expressing general concepts or ideas that would appeal to a particular set of voters. And what we see initially then in these countries has been, uh, in some ways, an overreaction to the idea of a Trump presidency. Well, we've seen it in this country as well in, in places, this overreaction that this must be the end of the world, this must change everything. But that's because there's not really a sense of what do we measure Trump against? And, you know, that's kind of the ironic thing here is that that uncertainty during the transition and in the first few months of the Trump presidency or really within the first two years, that unpredictability element can actually work as somewhat of a virtue in U.S. foreign policy, because if everyone is trying to think what is this presidency going to bring Um, In some cases, this means that countries have to revert to their own worst case scenarios, have to boost their own defenses. In some cases, that may work in the U.S. interest, whether it intends to or not. Well, I think it does. And and for a country the size of the United States, with the heft of the United States and with the often unintended consequences of actions of the United States, this unpredictability can be a powerful tool. With some smaller countries, unpredictability can be a much less useful tool because larger countries then determine that that country simply falls outside of the norm or outside of what they want to deal with. But I think for the United States, we're already seeing leaders around the world not only talking to uh, President-elect Trump and trying to push their agenda or trying to shape it, but also thinking about ways to potentially adjust their policies even before the president comes in. So in Eastern Europe, in Asia, there's already discussion of how do we increase either our own defense capability and capacity, uh, increase our cooperation with the United States to demonstrate that we play a valuable role in this and that we're carrying our own share of the burden 
Do we increase the economic spending that we have towards this, towards the U.S. Uh, alliance structure, things of that sort? That is ways that these countries are doing it. Others is probably going to be in trade. Do they start to look at ways to shift and adjust and tweak on trade so that there aren't uh, major changes in trade policies renegotiated with these countries, that instead they try to make the tweaks that are going to be just enough to appease what they perceive as the desires of the incoming administration to preempt that. And it may be that there are lots of things that the Trump administration doesn't have to do because countries are already acting in anticipation. So this is where geopolitics, our methodology, it really does get very raw in that when you have this cloak of American security um, that allies have grown accustomed to, I'm even recalling a reader response we had from a Hungarian saying, you know what, this U.S. security umbrella that we've had for, for a very long time, it's it's cheap. It's easy. And I, I thought the words were pretty interesting there. But, you know, if that's the impression, you know, that's being stripped away and countries do have to now figure out what they need to do to protect their national interests, then that results in a lot of interesting calculations. It's where, for example, when you're looking in Eastern Europe, all of a sudden the Carpathians really matter again, right? So a Hungary that has a bit more shield gets to keep its options open, gets to you know stay close to the Russians, but Poland feeling much more vulnerable, the Baltic states they're likely going to band together, try to reinforce each other, hope for the best with the United States, but really boost up their defenses. How would you say those countries in Southeast Asia, for example, would be responding to that uncertainty if they feel like those U.S. security guarantees aren't as firm as they used to be? Well, I think that there's two things we have to look at here. One is the the direct question on, on how they feel in the security concerns with the assertion that Donald Trump is going to change some of that uh, security relationship. And what's interesting is even prior to the U.S. election, you were seeing some shifts and changes in some of the Southeast Asian nations to get a better balance between their relation with China and their relation with the United States, because they were already seeing the potential that the United States was not going to give them the strong security backing, despite the pivot that's that's 98% done already. Because if you pull back even further and look at our long-term assessment of the global trend, with or without Donald Trump, you look at a United States that has been engaged in overseas warfare now for 15 years or so. It is a United States that has been heavily engaged, actually, that is reaching a certain point of exhaustion. Not exhaustion in the fact that it doesn't have military capacity or it doesn't have economic capacity, but really in a social and political exhaustion of this overseas uh, action that doesn't seem to have any outcome or end in sight. And if you look historically in the United States, when the U.S. has a very large surge abroad of activity, either World War I, World War II, um, if you go to Vietnam, if even if you look at some of the expansion during the Cold War, at the end of that time, there is a period of fatigue that sort of looks like the U.S. pulls back to being isolationist. It never truly is isolationist. But that the U.S. reduces its activist role, it pulls back a little bit, it focuses on the domestic social elements, it focuses on domestic politics, and that trend was coming into play anyway. And in Asia, that was already being recognized. And now it may be that there's a sense that that is accelerating with a Trump presidency over what perhaps a Clinton presidency would have given. But I don't think that the ultimate trend is fundamentally different. It's a change in the pace and scope. 
So the interesting thing here is that it's the intensity and the multitude of crises in these regions that still threatens to pull the United States in, to some degree, at least. And so when we look at, for example, North Korea, it's been on the back burner of many U.S. presidential agendas. I don't think we can see that trend continue. This is now going to come more and more to the forefront. It's where the United States has been investing in its security alliances with Japan, South Korea, most principally. And even if there is some perceived retrenchment from this fatigue that you speak of, there are still developments within those regions that pulls the U.S. in, but also has it rely even more heavily on those alliance structures, whether we're talking about the Far East, Central Eastern Europe, or the Middle East, you know, in dealing with countries like Turkey. So how much is it about the U.S., you know, not giving it its all in these regions versus um, still having to maintain and maybe even increasing its involvement, given just the intensification of those conflicts? Well, I'm not sure there's actually an intensification of the conflicts. In the North Korea case, what is the intensification? There's not a sense that there's an impending conflict. The North Koreans are accelerating their missile and nuclear program, and most of the assessments are that they will accomplish that missile and nuclear program. But the assessments also assert that they won't use them. So it's not that North Korea is suddenly pushing out and invading the South. The bigger concern is if North Korea is unable to feed its population And that creates a crisis. And there's always a potential for crises that draw the United States in. And I think that we can't look at a retrenchment of the United States in the sense of pure isolationism. The United States has and will always have global interests and global uh, roles that it sees pursuing. But the question is, does the United States choose which issues it deals with based on a, a strategic assessment Or does it choose to intervene or engage in issues based on a purely ideological assessment? And sometimes ideology draws the United States into places that don't necessarily require, from a strategic perspective, intervention and interaction. And this goes back to the underlying sort of dichotomy of the way in which the United States has always looked at its role internationally. Does the United States sit, in many ways, protected as an island? on the far side of the world from most of the population as a country that can, through its example, simply encourage other people to follow its example but not need to engage always directively and interactively? Or is the United States a country that because it considers itself so unique and considers its system so unique that it feels compelled to engage and interact. And you go back to look at this, and this debate has been up and down in U.S. policy. It may be that we're moving back to a point, at least in in the near term, that is less about forcing other countries uh, to follow the U.S. model than recognizing, at least for the time being, that other countries are going to follow their own models. Mm. And so long as that doesn't fundamentally threaten core U.S. interests, there's not a requirement to intervene, and therefore more choice can be placed in what is necessary versus what is simply ideal. So it's a more realist mindset as opposed to the idealist. And this was something where when Obama came um, into power, he received a lot of criticism for policies about, you know, extending the hand, not the fist, uh, you know, trying to to seek out this rapprochement with Iran, you know, same with Cuba. North Korea got left out of that mix. But 
you know, that's a tough one. But still, there was a pragmatism to that as the United States was getting bogged down in multiple conflict zones. It couldn't afford to keep open this front with Iran while dealing with emerging threats elsewhere in the Middle East, still dealing with Russia, dealing with China, a host of other conflicts. It needed to find a way to sort of recalibrate its foreign policy. And so it was still couched, though, in very idealistic terms, right? That the U.S. was, you know, having these budding friendships with longtime adversaries, which made a lot of people uncomfortable. Yet what we see out of President-elect Trump's rhetoric and the people surrounding him is also, you could argue, a pretty pragmatic outlook toward certain countries. For example, and how do you deal with Russia? Can there be a negotiation that doesn't continue to lead to this escalating standoff with China, recognizing China in more of a global role, more as a peer, and where that negotiation could lead. So do you see that pragmatism also come through potentially in U.S. foreign policy under a Trump presidency? I think in many ways that pragmatism, barring a sharp crisis that creates a strong threat to the United States, or barring the unique case right at the end of the Cold War, where there really was no threat or in many ways strategic requirement on the United States. In most other cases, you end up with pragmatism in some ways because you need to. And I think, though, that the the thing we need to look at is that perhaps it will be on the domestic front that ideology is the driver. And on the international front, it's more driven by, by a bit more of a pragmatic set of policies. You know, you saw it in uh, George Bush Jr., where he became president and the expectation was one way in his relations with China. And after 9-11, he shifted his relations with China and he had a very different policy towards them. I think that while a president does have the ability to set the top tier priorities and to shape the overall direction of U.S. policy, that because the United States is such a strong piece of the global system, it always is going to be impacted and have to shift and adjust based on things that are happening in other places. The rest of the world in many ways does get a vote, not necessarily in who the president is, but in what issues the president ends up having to focus on as priorities. So complete retrenchment then is a very unlikely prospect. As you said, isolationism is not really an option for the United States when it when it occupies so much of the global stage. And when we look at U.S. negotiations with big powers like China, like Russia, where things have been framed very negatively to date, but, you know, could start to take on more of a positive tone, there are still walls of constraints that come along the way, right? At the end of the day, Chinese maritime interests in protecting their trade supply lines and and trying to recreate, um, you know, the regional order in its favor, its sphere of influence, that hits up against U.S. maritime interests at the end of the day. There's a certain line that can't be crossed, and that doesn't really matter who the president is. Same thing for Europe, right, where Russia can extend itself into into Eastern Europe um, and try to take advantage of uncertainty in U.S. policy. But at the end of the day, there is still this push for the U.S. to make sure that Russia can't go too far, that there's still some level of a blocking force there. So at the end of the day, we still see the U.S. occupying a significant role here. It's a question of to what degree is it actively going to rely on its allies, or do those allies feed off the uncertainty to shoulder more of the burden on their own? And that I think is exactly what a lot of these allies are trying to understand right now. 
how much are they going to have to do themselves? How much are they going to be able to draw the United States in to take that stronger role? And how much did they simply find ways to manage their regional pressure relationships uh, rather than perceive them in an us versus them pattern? Russia also garnered quite a bit of attention during the current US presidential election cycle. In part two of this episode of Stratford Talks, Deputy Editor Lynn Wise sits down to speak with senior Eurasia analyst Lauren Goodrich to discuss the role of geography in Russia's historic pattern of expansion and contraction. Hi, I'm Lynn Wise, and with me today is Lauren Goodrich to talk about her Geopolitical Weekly on Russia. So, Lauren, we've heard a lot about Russian aggression lately, um, but you kind of posit in your most recent weekly that um, it's part of this longer historical cycle um, based upon uh, Russia's geographic constraints. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you lay out some of those constraints? Yeah, I mean, Russia's not acting as a bully or as an aggressor just to be a bully, um, as much as the West likes to depict this as just a a, a Putin phenomenon. Um, Instead, it's really rooted inside of Russia's geography and its geographic constraints. I mean, you're talking about the largest country in the world. 75% of it is frozen the majority of the year. Um, Its grain belt is precariously placed in a way that it's difficult to transit uh, food across the entire country to feed all the population. It's a country that is surrounded on all sides by various enemies from Europe, Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, and of course the United States is global. And so it's a country that is absolutely paranoid with maintaining internal cohesion while rebuffing external influences pretty much. And the only way Russia can really do this is by expanding its borders and consolidating at home. And so um, can you talk about how that's kind of led into this cycle of kind of uh, times of massive expansion and boom and then just complete destruction Mm -hmm. and and kind of bust? Yes. So Russia is a very interesting historic case study in that you can see a fairly loosely similar uh, cycle happen over and over and over again for over a thousand years in which you have Russia because of its geographic vulnerabilities have to consolidate at home. Um, and then it has to start expanding its borders out, or at least its influence out, in order to prevent any of those outside influences from influencing what's happening inside of Russia and break down what's already a fragile country to begin with. And so we've seen throughout history someone come in and really swoop in, consolidate the people, um, create a national identity, and unify the people underneath their cause. I call them the savior, pretty much. Um, And then they start expanding out um, into the borderlands, um, all the way out through Central Asia, down through the Caucasus, out through Europe, um, in which Russia has to then pretty much rule over very diverse and hostile populations that don't want to be ruled by Moscow, especially because Moscow is so far away, ethnically and uh, demographically is very different than the Russian population. And because of this, Um, Russia tends to become overextended um, because they have to financially take care of these people, politically try to keep some sort of cohesion. It takes a military. It takes a very robust security service. And so because of this, um, Russia becomes so overextended that it tends to collapse or it has to completely transform what it is. And then it goes right back to the start of the cycle. 
And so we've been kind of at the peak of this of expansion. And um, so what comes next? Can, can history kind of give us a clue to, to that? There's quite a few scenarios um, moving forward. So Vladimir Putin has done an absolutely brilliant job at saving Russia. Whether you like him or not, he came in and took it from the chaos of the fall of the Soviet Union and underneath Boris Yeltsin and recreated Russia to be a very robust and strong country internally by consolidating and starting to push back out what we've called the Russian resurgence for the past decade into its borderlands and up against um, various enemies or as it sees rivals pretty much, whether it be NATO in the United States or Turkey or China. Um, And so Putin has come to the point to where he had a very stable and strong country until 2014. And then we saw just a series of crises um, really create the perfect storm for the Kremlin in which the Kremlin now is financially weakened, is politically weakened, is seeing failures all over its borderland to maintain its influence. And we're starting to reach the point that something is going to have to change for Vladimir Putin in which he can muddle along for quite a while. I mean, Brezhnev muddled along for decades. Um, However, Putin is under so much internal and external um, pressures that something going into the next decade, especially as he enters his fourth term in less than two years, um, is going to have to change for him. I'm not saying Russia is going to collapse, but um, there's either going to have to be a political or um, a foreign policy shift out of Russia. Is there a break to the cycle? Is there any, like, is there something unexpected that could arise? And what what could that look like? Well, we're seeing so many fragmentations happen around the world. And we're seeing a world that's very different than 1991 Soviet Union collapse, to where it was the two big poles and one of them collapses. Now there's powers all around the world. Um, And to where it's not just about having the United States' geopolitical rival uh, fall apart. Now it's about um, a rival to powers all over the world from Germany and Poland um, to Turkey and Iran to China and Japan and South Korea. To where Russia now has to worry about a lot more than it did at the Soviet collapse. To where there is so much influence kind of um, bombarding Russia's borders from all sides um, and very powerful influence that it didn't have to really think about so much uh, external pressure on it um, versus 1991. Thank you. We'll be watching closely. That concludes this episode of Stratfor Talks. If you'd like to learn more about the potential implications of a Trump presidency on US foreign policy or the role that geography plays in Russia's cycle of expansion and contraction, we'll include links to recent analysis in the show notes. We'd also like to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about the show, you can leave us a message and we'll try to include it in a future episode of the podcast. You can reach Stratford Talks at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917. And you can also email us at podcast at stratford.com or leave a review or comment about the show. For more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that reveals the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, visit us at stratfor.com. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, at Stratfor. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>